Hello, and welcome to the No Capes Needed podcast, the official podcast for the Women's Health Collaborative. My name is Faye Kai, and I will be your host today. With me today is Dr. Gita Swamy. Dr. Swamy is the Vice Chair of Research and Faculty Development for Duke Obstetrics and Gynecology. She is also the Associate Vice President for Research at Duke University and the Vice Dean for Scientific Integrity at the Duke School of Medicine. So Dr. Swamy, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and welcome. Thank you so much, Faye, and thanks for, uh, for talking with me this evening. So Dr. Swamy, what we've been doing on our podcast is hoping to um, introduce the listeners to some of the leaders in women's health and kind of getting an insight into their backgrounds and seeing, you know, what their interests are currently. So one thing I like to start off with is um, just to ask you how you got interested in women's health, how you came to where you are now, and um, if there were any interesting things that happened along your path to, to where you are now. Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's it's so interesting uh, <clears throat> when, I, when you ask that and I have to really think about it, uh, I have had a path that I would not have predicted uh, if you asked me that you know 20 years ago or so. And when I went to medical school, I was pretty confident I wanted to do something involving women's health, although I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't realize that meant I was going to uh, eventually go into obstetrics and gynecology. I was pretty focused on ideas about primary care for women. I knew I wanted to do something in the space of um, providing care early on, particularly in the setting of um, family planning, you know, planning out your life. But I didn't really know I wanted to do what I do now. I got more and more interested in women's health as I was doing my clinical rotations or clerkships. And I did my clerkship in surgery and I surprisingly really liked it. I was not expecting to. Uh, At the time, I was a medical student uh, on my surgery rotation that would have been around 1999 or so. And at the time, it was an incredibly male-dominated profession. And as I was starting the rotation, I was really not very excited about it. I was apprehensive about how it might go. And it actually went incredibly well. I had a great team. I was the only woman on some of the rotations, uh, but it was a team that was incredibly welcoming. And the attending physicians that I worked with were, I think, either a a stroke of luck for me or happenstance were very supportive and I really liked surgery. But then I did my OBGYN rotation and it all fell into place. And I thought, wow, I can do some primary care. I can do surgery. I can uh, help women through these times in their life where they have crucial decisions to make. And it all just sort of came together from that perspective. The other things that have led to my path were that I also had a particular love in coursework during medical school in microbiology and infectious disease. And I think that also sort of laid a foundation for me in women's health, particularly as uh, as women are disparately impacted by sexually transmitted infections, and meaning not necessarily that they have them more frequently than men, but the complications thereafter and the impacts on their reproductive health. So I would say that those, that was the foundation for my research interests in infectious disease that eventually led me down the path where I am today as a researcher is doing uh, research in perinatal infection, in particularly in maternal health, as well as efforts to try to prevent infection through administration of vaccines for women and children. That's great. Um, 
I really like to hear about people's backgrounds and how they kind of got into um, what they're interested in now. Um, and so you mentioned your research, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your research. Is there a direction that you see this year, for example, or in the next few years of where your research is going? How would you talk to medical students or residents or fellows, for example, who are interested in the things that you're interested in? How would they get involved? Sure, absolutely. So it's interesting. I think many, many people out there see when they go to college, medical school, any of those things, research means somehow being in the lab, right? It's about, um, you know, uh, flasks and burette funnels and all those sorts of things, pipetting. And I will, uh, I'm a great example of exactly the opposite. I uh, shy away from the lab. I broke too many uh, glass pieces during chemistry lab and so forth. <laughs> and, and I realized that was not the place for me. But I knew that I wanted to figure out the answers to all the questions that we couldn't answer during our courses or during the time we were caring for patients. It didn't make sense to me. I go, well, why don't we just figure out why, what the next thing is to do or what the treatment should be? And so I generally talk about how uh, research is a bit of an addiction. Uh, it's a little bit of uh, a motivation, a calling. It's not something you can just convince people to do. You have to have some sort of drive that says, I want to do more. I want to figure this out. And for my research, uh, I'm a, also a little bit different in the sense that I think many people in OBGYN would say the classic things that we go down the path, and particularly in my area, being in maternal fetal medicine or high-risk obstetrics, you know, most people would say that we should focus on improving the most common outcomes, such as preeclampsia, preterm birth, uh, low birth weight, those sorts of things, uh, complications of pregnancy. Absolutely, we have to figure those things out. But for me, I, I don't know why I was always a little bit drawn to um, doing something off the beaten path, I guess. And so I was able to, early on in my career as a faculty member, got involved with uh, colleagues in pediatrics and in infectious disease and started to do work in vaccine development, delivery, and uptake. And so my area of research is actually trying to figure out how to give vaccines to women during pregnancy, either to prevent diseases that would affect the mother or to prevent diseases that would affect the baby. And examples of that uh, would be influenza, that if women get influenza during pregnancy, they can have very, very serious complications, both for themselves and for their pregnancy. But another example is pertussis. So pertussis or whooping cough doesn't generally cause most adults very, very serious complications. It can, but it's not common. However, if a, an infant, say less than about six or eight months, gets pertussis, has an incredibly high chance of not only severe morbidity, but even mortality. And so by giving vaccines to women during pregnancy, the natural process of antibodies crossing the placenta can protect the infant during those first few months of life. I think the way I've worked with residents, medical students, fellows, and so forth is to really think about pushing them to come up with what their research question is and how to implement that. And for me, I think understanding clinical trials and how we do those, how we design them, how we implement that is fundamental 
to being a clinician. So even if you're not going to go into research in your future, if you pick up the Green Journal or pick up AJOG, it's great if you read the abstract and know what the implications are, but it's even better if you can truly understand what they're talking about, what they did, and look at it with a discriminating eye to decide, do you believe it? Was that adequate? Did they do a good job? So I love to get trainees involved in my research, particularly from the standpoint of uh, interacting with participants, uh, helping with study design, helping with analytics uh, and interpretation, and hopefully with publication and eventually getting them into their career if that's what they choose to do. Uh, thank you. I think it's really interesting coming at, from this as a fellow, right, where I feel like certainly it seems like everyone around me, because we're in academia, is doing research. And the question is always, you know, how did they come up with that brilliant research question? Or how did they come up with that brilliant project? And, you know, am I just dumber than everybody else because I can't think of these questions? <laughs> uh, no, I'll tell you something, though. The difference is when you are a fellow and you see, or you're training at any level, and you see the attendings and the faculty you work with, it is often hard to not be awestruck. You look at them and you think, what an amazing career and accomplishments they have. And the presumption then is that that comes naturally. So what I would tell you is that the drive to do it is what has to be inside you. But there is nothing truly magical to doing research. It's hard work. It's learning the process. It's being educated on the best practices to get it done. But I'll tell you that none of those faculty that you work with or that you're looking up to or that you admire or want to emulate, they had a lot of, uh, you know, false starts themselves. It's just what you know of when you see what they've published, when you see what they're presenting, when you see what they're talking about. So I guarantee you, if you talk to them, they all have story upon story of projects they started that didn't work, uh, things that they thought would be the be-all, end-all answer. That, that didn't turn out that way. So don't be necessarily fooled by that or intimidated by that. Just know that uh, they're just like you. And it's not that you necessarily have to come up with the idea now as a fellow. I think the important part is learning the process so that ultimately when you have the idea, you'll know how to execute it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm hoping to achieve with this podcast is to kind of approach people like yourself who are leaders in their field and kind of making it seem that, you know, doing what you do, that you are approachable. Because I feel like there's a lot of times where we read um, people like yourself, your names in the green journal or, you know, in the gray, and we're like, oh my goodness, this person is um, so inaccessible. You know, they're so busy with whatever it is that they're doing. Right. Yeah, I would tell you that, um, so if you, if you see someone that you want to meet, right, it's very intimidating to walk up to them and ask them. And, you know, I can say all of these things to you now, Faye, uh, being at the point I am in my career, and I understand where you are, right, is, is, is about 16 years or so behind me. <laughs> and, and thinking about, you know, being, say, like at SMFM or SRI or something like that and, and, and seeing someone you want to meet, you know, it's unlikely you're going to just walk up to them, right? But I'll tell you something, uh, email, right, is very democratizing. So you send an email to someone, they can easily answer it whenever they have time, right? It isn't in the moment that you're in a meeting that you're suddenly taking up their time when they're trying to, you know, navigate lots of other things. And, and you know, if you send someone an email because you want to meet them, you want to talk to them, you want to understand what they do, understand their path, uh, what have you lost if they don't answer you? 
not a whole lot, right? They're not going to remember your name. I'll tell you if they're too busy, they don't look at it and go, I can't believe that fake high emailed me. You know, I don't have time to talk to her. It's really just that they don't have time. Um, so there's no judgment passed, right? And quite frankly, I'll tell you that in particular, I think many, many women uh, similar to me would be pleased beyond belief to get an email from someone like you asking them to chat, um, asking them to just figure out, like, is there some, you know, area of interest that we share? Is there something that I could learn from you? Is there something that we could work on or collaborate on with? And I think that uh, reaching out is the first step. And I think that women in general in academia are realizing this and getting better about um, suggesting that you reach out to them as well. What do you feel like is the number one issue in women's health today? Um, and do you have any insight into potentially what could be done to maybe mitigate that issue? Sure, absolutely. So it's a funny time, right, that we're talking the fall of uh, 2020 with all the things that have been going on in our society today uh, from the standpoint of infectious disease and COVID and lots of political activity ongoing. And uh, without you know going into the weeds of the politics, um, it's very clear, right, that women, unfortunately, continue to be discriminated against, marginalized, and impacted in ways that they don't have the power to say what should happen in their lives. And I think, ultimately, one of the biggest policy-level type issues in women's health is really going to be about reproductive justice, uh, equality to choose what they want to do about their health. It's not really coming down to the fact about deciding about anything else but their own health and their own life. And I think that, you know, there's a lot that has been done at the policy level to say, for, as an example, medications, right? We're right now in the midst of COVID, uh, ongoing COVID pandemic in our country. And we still do not have uh, an approved, ready to go, clinical trial of a preventive drug or vaccine for COVID-19 in pregnant women. I know, I understand what the, what the fears are. I understand that people have concerns about the health of a baby. Ultimately, though, a woman should have every right to decide about her own health. We, we take care of patients, you and I, right, that we take care of a woman first, but we ultimately want to have a healthy mom and a healthy baby at the end of that pregnancy. So it's not as if obstetricians don't care about a fetus, don't care about a future infant, but ultimately we still have to provide the care for that woman. And I think that it's going to take women to stand up together in a united way to impact the policy, that, the policy changes that we need to ensure that women have an equal voice in what happens to them on so many levels from medications to drug to contraception to access to healthcare, all of those things. And I think, unfortunately, it is a, a true fact that in the academic setting, we focus primarily on advancing health through medications, therapeutics, and so forth. Uh, but we have and I think will continue to be the strongest voice for women and their health. And it's never been clearer to me that we have to get more and more involved into this space on policy as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think especially, you know, in this time when we're it's the fall of 2020, as you said, and kind of watching what's been going on on TV, you know, sensing the changes that are happening um, around us and what we've been seeing. I think definitely this is one of the most important things that I feel like we need to stand up for our patients. Absolutely. I think, you know, I kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit more about mentorship and also mentors that you've had in the past and what you would consider to be a good mentor um, and potentially what qualities do you see now where you are um, in people who are good mentors versus those that may not be as good of mentors? Absolutely. So uh, first of all, I'm a big fan. I think that you uh, it is you can be a satisfied and successful person without having someone you would call a mentor. So I would never go as far as to say it's an absolute and a must. But quite frankly, it's so much better and so much more um, fulfilling to have to either be a mentor or to have a relationship with with an incredible mentor. And I have had, I would tell you that at this point in my life, I have had several, uh, but I have had, I can name two people just very distinctly who were mentors for me early on in my career. Um, one is uh, Dr. Philip Heine, who is the chair of OBGYN at Wake Forest University. He was my uh, early stage mentor in residency at the University of Pittsburgh. And he's the person that I can remember thinking in my head, I want to be like him. I want to do the things that he does. Like he loves what he does. He loves taking care of patients. He's an amazing clinician. He's got an incredible mind for research and he seems to be happy and have fun. And all of those facts are true <laughs> or all of those things are true facts. And it was uh, amazing to work with him. And he came to Duke and recruited me as a fellow. And that's what brought me to Duke and have been there ever since that. Uh, and um, he's always been a, a major fan and a supporter. But I would tell you that the other person who equal and in some ways in very different, well, I should say in different ways, uh, has been a great mentor is uh, Dr. Amy Murtha. And Dr. Murtha is the chair of OBGYN at UCSF now. Amy is someone who I can call as a mentor from a standpoint of research, but is the perfect example that I can give for someone who eventually became my colleague and dear friend. And now I would consider us as collegial mentors. So it's more about um, how do you, who do you call when you need that gut check? When you're like, you know, this just happened. Is that, am I, am I overreacting? Am I right? Is that okay? Am I crazy? Like what, what's going on? Right. And it's an amazing thing, though, to go from a mentor-mentee relationship to a colleague. The best mentors out there are able to do that. The best mentors out there want you to succeed. Uh, they want you to succeed in ways that go beyond them. Um, they're not jealous or uh, upset when you might um, no longer need them so much um, or that you might even surpass them. But the reality is that your success is an example of their success, right? It's really demonstrating what an amazing contribution they made to your career. 
And to me, if you don't have someone that you can call as a mentor, you need to find one. And uh, I guess I'll just put in a plug for that for the Women's Health Collaborative, because it is something that we're planning to do, is to offer what we're essentially considering or calling consultative services, because it's become very clear to us that many, many women out there don't always have those options available wherever they're working, uh, wherever they are. And, and the other part, I guess I will say about the mentorship aspect is that we talked about before, I am a researcher. I am at an academic institution. I am at a place where I was on a career development award where research mentorship has really been a major focus, particularly for NIH and career development and physician scientist development and so forth. I think only recently has there been a significant focus on career development in the uh, medical education space. And I think we're still lagging behind on that in the uh, clinical development space, meaning, you know, what's the path to becoming a division chief, a chair? What's the path to becoming a medical director or a, a service line director in a hospital? Any of those sorts of things. And I think that it's important, particularly in areas where you don't have great experience or comfort in how to navigate those to find good mentors and good sponsors. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Swami. I think that's really great advice for finding mentors and also just good insight into kind of where maybe mentorship is still lacking. And I really appreciate the fact that the Women's Health Collaborative is providing this service. We're, we're, we're getting ready to, uh, we, I think Dr. Elevitz announced that and we're just organizing ourselves. So I'm hopeful that we'll have those things pulled together within, say, the next month or two. Just in our last few minutes together, I wanted to ask you if you had any advice for the people coming up behind you, again, medical students, residents, fellows, early career researchers, clinicians, educators? Absolutely. So obviously being in academic medicine, I have a certain slant, right, for how I view things. But I would tell you that while it's a hard road, while there's a lot of things out there that make it difficult, particularly for women from the standpoint of uh, promotion, retention, the standpoint of uh, pay equity and so forth. It's an amazing privilege to provide care for women. It, in the setting of what we do in obstetrics, it is still, I was just on call last weekend, and it still puts the biggest smile on my face when I'm in a delivery, right? And so we just kind of always have to remember what, what are the good aspects of what we do. But for those who are early on, I think it's really important, and I don't know how to stress this to people, to really think through what it is you want. What do you want as a person? What do you want as a woman? What do you want as a physician? What is it that you want to do and what you want to be? You may not have the answer yet, but don't do what you think people want you to do. Don't do what you think is just the path laid out for you that you have to do. Keep pushing yourself to think, what is it that I want to do and why? And you'll be much happier. Don't think you have to live, to other, live up to other people's expectations. Because ultimately, I find so many women on a career path that they did or pursued because they thought that's what they were supposed to do. And it doesn't have to be that way. It may not be easy. You may not know what it is, but that's where you need to seek out guidance and mentorship to figure out what the right thing is to do. Thank you, Dr. Swami, for that piece of advice. I think it's definitely something that, um, especially I think people who are very early on, it's a question that they need to ask themselves um, and to figure out for themselves. 
Absolutely. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Swami, for coming on to this podcast. And thank you for speaking with me and taking the time this evening to chat. You're welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for spending time doing this with us. We appreciate it. Of course. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the No Capes Needed podcast. Once again, this is Faye Kai, and I am your host. Um, If you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can also find us on the web at www.womenshealthcollaborative.org or tweet at us at womenshc.org.